Please be warned that this podcast has strong language and adult content. That's it. That's all you're getting, Richard. That's it. Uh, That's it, mate. uh, um, (laughs) Welcome, everybody, to the podcast. There's Jim. I'm Richard. With us is Blind Fury. That's all you're getting, Jim. (laughs) That was the worst (laughs) intro I've ever heard. There's no energy. Didn't care. (laughs) Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the podcast of podcasts, where gamers can game and learn new and interesting things. Or not. Matthew is already better than you, Richard. You're fired. Yeah, I, I've known this for a while. And I just made him earlier a while ago. I mean, so I already knew he was better. Oh, uh, he's hired. See you later. Bye, Felicia. I'm gone. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, guys. Uh, um, Jim, that's miserable southerner is Richard. And joining us this week is... Uh, community member matthew aka blind fury from the discord welcome matthew thanks very much thanks for having me well, yeah, it's it great Jim's idea, you. you know <laughs> but anyway <laughs> it is good to have you in here and uh glad to meet you i know um yeah i've seen you posting out there and i know you're already way more intelligent than me so you know i'm just gonna sit back and listen and I doubt I learned anything, but I'm going to try. I'll promise you that. I do Something. declare. I guess I'll try and uh, I guess I'll try and teach you or learn you. Yeah, learn you. That's what it is. Yeah, we we do the learning <laughs> down here in the yeah. south. You know? And something interesting we have with Matthew Rich is, is that he's just created a D and D five E character for his first D and D five E game. Although he's very experienced in many other RPGs. Excellent. Uh, actually, well, I made one uh, rogue and then uh, ended up switching over to a warlock, uh, which I'm having a great deal of fun making. I love min-maxing and digging into character development. It's probably my favorite part of role-playing is just building characters. So you were saying that you play-tested Pathfinder 2E, and I started out on D&D 3.5, although I've never played Pathfinder. What, what do you find the biggest differences directly between Pathfinder and D&D 5e, like on the surface, just jumping in for a character? So um, I have not played the published version of Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Uh, what I've been told, it's very similar to the playtest. Uh, if um, I should break down the difference between Pat, what Pathfinder was for someone who's not familiar with it, like uh, in terms of what it was to 3.5, and what it was to what the what the playtest did for us. Um, anyone who's done three or three point five, uh, like there were a lot of options out there, but players often wanted to consolidate or get more granularity in their character building and development and advance in interesting directions. And that typically came from feats or character traits in different class development. And Pathfinder because Wizards of the Coast published D&D 3 and 3.5 as an open game license so that essentially as long as you credited them, you could build in their sandbox. A lot of companies built stuff. Like I even have, uh, my wife got me a Judge Dredd um, future role-playing game based on their uh, 20th uh, D20 modern setting. Um, so there's lots of material out there. Yeah, that's a, that's totally worth picking up too. I believe that's on Drive-Thru RPG as well. Um, it is a a real interesting setting for anyone who likes uh, who likes the Judge Dredd universe. Uh, but I, I digress. Um, 
but the the thing that uh, Pathfinder did was they built they basically built the game that I think a lot of players wanted, which was the option to have more choices, and it kind of got out of control. Uh, there was a lot you could do a lot of things depending on how many supplements you chose to add and which ones you picked from. You could min max to your heart's desire um, at infinitum, and what second edition Pathfinder did was they said, okay, essentially we've gotten, we've made, put so many choices into the game. It's very difficult for people to keep up with these things. We want to give people a somewhat more streamlined experience, but still keep to the heart of those choices. So um, for example, I think I built a a goblin character, um, a wizard or a sorcerer. No, it was a sorcerer. And you could pick the goblin race, and then there were traits you could pick up as a goblin. You could grab a feat or two, um, but a lot of your things that you did were modified by uh, bonuses, and it was a stat bonus based on your level um, at the time. So, for example, like a level, I'm going to, without going into too much detail, you'd end up with like a level two character would have a plus two, a level four character would have a plus four, something like that. Uh, the problem that came with that was that a lot of your combat results and your contested results were modified by that. And the difference in, in mod in the modified results would determine your effectiveness. And what ended up happening was if you fought a much higher level character, at least in the play test, uh, more than four or five levels, it was almost impossible to do anything against them. Uh, and likewise, if you were a lower level character, or if you were the higher level character, it was harder for enemies or other people to hurt you or do things. So it was, and it was, it was, everything was streamlined into those modifiers to a point where it, it was very difficult to gain an advantage strategically um, because of the way the numerical interactions worked. Well, it was I, pre, predetermined to an extent is what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, there were some ways to work around it. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure people listening to this will, uh, will have the, uh, you know, the, the actually moment. Actually, you, you, could, you could do this. And, <laughs> There's always those. That's right, you know? I, <laughs> this one doesn't know, what know it all. I don't know. This one yes. doesn't know what he's talking about. I figured out how to get around oh, it in yeah. the first game I played. You're so smart. <laughs> <laughs> Pushing the glasses up on the nose, that sort of thing. But, um, I mean, that, that was my experience. And uh, what I've, in just reading through 5th edition, uh, what they've done is they've taken the best parts of, I think, what Pathfinder did in its 2nd edition and what D&D and a lot of other games were known for, which was giving you lots of choices, but they've streamlined it into a better... You still have tons of choices, but a lot of them are pre-scripted depending on where you are in your development. Like, for example, the the basic three choices in 5th edition that I see are race, class, background. And from those, you get... It guides you in a direction when you're building a character. Like, do you want to be a wizard? Do you want to be a gnome? If you want to be a gnome, do you want to be a rock gnome or a forest gnome? And you can min-max those by picking the benefits you want, but it lets you... uh, chunk a lot of those choices into role-playing based choices and then if you want to min-max based on the results of those role-playing choices or vice versa you can but it makes it a lot simpler like i can just say i mean even in the what is it even in the player's handbook in the developmental section i'm like here's a quick character builder yeah just pick these three things and your character's built done yeah it's pretty impossible to fuck it up and and have a bad time playing the game 
Yeah, I mean, and I mean, I might disagree with some of the choices that the uh, thing recommends as optimal build choices, but they're there, and you even have an array, a stat array that you can pick, uh, which I like as a GM. Um, it means that there, are, I can just point to characters and say, every one of you pick the stat line. None of you are going to have a three for intelligence, and none of you are going to have six six attributes at eighteen. And everyone's going to be roughly equal, um, and it's a good place to start. And because the modifiers in five E are uh, quantitative, but they don't outclass or uh, move you in and out of different success ranges, you. I, I like the way you can build. You can build for consistency, or you can build towards focusing around one attribute or one skill. Uh, you, it feels like you're building a character as opposed to when I started in second edition. Um, uh, there were the hit system was Thaco, which is to hit armor class zero. Yeah, and there was a there was an entirely counterintuitive set of math. I mean, at the time we didn't have anything to compare it to, so it seemed like the only system it was obviously the best <laughs> but uh you know having gone into things like dungeon world and a lot of other gaming systems since then i really uh i can see where the system sort of fell down on it on under the weight of its own uh assumptions like uh you had non-weapon proficiencies those were your skills and the very fact that they define them as there's weapon proficiencies and there are these few sub skills which aren't related to killing things Mm. Uh, said a lot about the, the way the game was set up. And there were other things, too, like each class advanced with different experience requirements. If you're a rogue or a bard, you advance much faster than, say, a paladin or a, a priest uh, or a cleric. Uh, there were um, a lot of things that you assumed to be in evidence which were not necessarily so. And classes were not... I mean, it wasn't like 4th edition where... You basically each class had the same set of skills. They were just titled different things in a lot of ways, and uh, you you got the same result. You just got it by using a spell versus a sword or something like that. Um, but they were you had different classes that were useful at different levels in different ways, depending on how intelligent your GM was. At higher levels, especially like if you got really high into like the twenties, you needed combat. You need melee fighters because most really bad monsters couldn't had huge magic resistances or themselves were magic users um, yeah it seems like uh D 5e is is a a step between uh 3.5 or pathfinder and something like dungeon world where it's a more narrative game right like uh, as you were saying with dnd 5e you're really creating a character and, and not you're not always thinking about uh min maxing just because of the way they've set it up narratively and and with those modifiers, it doesn't make that much of a difference, especially when you're starting out. And you're more likely to read the descriptions of how things work as opposed to what you know numerical buffer they give you. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, one of the elements that drove me into Dungeon World initially was the battle map. Um, for anyone who's played 3.5 or 3, like uh, battles were a... I'm a miniature gamer. I love war games. I play them all the time. Uh, I probably play war games more than I uh, than I do role playing games as a you know on, a, on an averaged basis through like since two thousand. And it really took away from the experience. 
uh, I mean, if that's what you wanted to do, it was great. But for someone who's visually impaired, there are a lot of abstract choices you have to make in a hex-based game, which is essentially, or you know, square-based, tile-based, however you want to call it, that strategically you had to coordinate with all your friends if you wanted an optimal outcome. Uh, mm -hmm. If you were like me and you were a more strategic player, you weren't willing to settle for a, a lesser outcome or a bad choice, you would agonize. Every Everything you did was, will I cross someone's uh, threatened square? Will I like, yeah, provoke ten minute decision. <laughs> yeah. And someone else would say, you could do this, or if you do this, I'll do this. And if you had three or four of us with strategic, like, what you ended up doing was basically um, playing the old, what I call like the, the old game of Pandemic, the first uh, board game, where mm -hmm. essentially the game devolved into one person has to tell everybody else what they have to do turn by turn, and everyone group would vote on the strategy. Or there was mass chaos. Which, you know, is its own entertainment. But it didn't lead to fun gaming sessions for me. Yeah. Um, everything had to be mapped out. There was a lot of prep work. I felt bad for our GM, honestly. Uh, you know, sure, you can model the things with Skittles and pretzels if you have to. And it wasn't like we lacked for miniatures, but it had to have been difficult to like hand sketch every single battle zone or room every time we got into it and pre-think and move through the math. It's like it's literally like the GM was playing against the characters um, as opposed to a narrative style. And uh, I now that the battle map is an option, but it's not a requirement, You things like, uh, I mean, most of the combat feats in 3 and 3.5 were based around some element of the battle map, whether it was threatened squares, whether it was provoking attacks of opportunity, whether it was pushing people into other squares. Ranges were in squares. Uh, not having that anymore allows GMs to interact in a more narrative fashion. And it's easier for people like me who have a visual impairment to describe the battlefield and talk through preconceptions and people can make choices. And I don't have to say, well, you're actually five steps away from this person. I mean, you guys have experienced that. Was it someone on our, on a Knights of the Braille have tried, uh, was trying to do a, a kill team version of, uh, uh, of the Warhammer 40,000 game. That could yeah. be actually, and it's exactly the same scenario. Like, how do you get get people who can't actually count the blocks when you're talking about diagonals and potentially cross diagonals at weird angles? How do you determine range? Yeah, and the only way we figured to do that was play by post because if you sat down to play it, it would take hours. Yeah, and that's not fun. No, <laughs> I, I mean I don't. Uh, I. Uh, so I've um, I've played a lot of the Games Workshop base miniatures systems. I've played Privateer Press, and I will tell you that any game that takes more than like sixty minutes to play, you start valuing the experience based on the outcome, whether you lose or win. At least I do, and it's different if I take a game that can be played quickly and I decide to stretch it into a four-hour game because I want to have a glass of bourbon with a friend. And we want to laugh at how badly we rolled. But if minimum playtime ends up being like two, three hours, and that's with me not drinking a glass of bourbon and working my models around, and every choice is, is a gut-wrenching you know, switch between what the dice will roll and whether I made a good choice or not, then whether I win or lose does actually start to impact the, how much I enjoy it. And uh, 
I think removing the battle map was one of the best moves I've seen from, uh, I guess, three. I didn't really play fourth. Uh, I've already played oh, miniature I've game. I've never played it. And, uh, I mean, it, it looked like a great miniature game with some uh, excellent tangential role-playing opportunity based on the mechanics to me. Um, and I'm sure, again, there's uh, someone who will push and say actually, etc. cetera, uh, and I respect other people's choices there. Um, it just wasn't the game for me at that at that time. So uh, I, I think I the, mean, the edition looks great. I'd, I'd love to have the option to play with the battle map, but as you say, the amount of prep as well for the GM, because the other advantage of narrative combat is that you can bullshit your way through it as well. You'd be like, oh, actually, yeah, there's a there's a tree over there. Sure, yeah, you can do that. Yeah, yeah. So, and like when a player, it gives you the option of like when a player says, "Are there any of are there any small stones in the area? Uh, mm-hmm. Is there a pool of water somewhere in the room?" Um, you know, if you have a character who's lost a spell component pouch and the the component is a cup of water, uh, it might be fun. It, like if you if you draw everything out. You can still say there's a pool of water here, but it wasn't drawn there before. Now you got to draw it in. There, there's work, there's labor associated with the with the game, and it's one of the reasons I like Dungeon World. Is it's not a it, the the lack of precision in terms of the battlefield um, allows you people to ask questions and you to answer, and it's just a, a call and response style of storytelling. Um, I find it fascinating though that you're into you know, min-maxing and getting the most out of strategic decisions. But then you're quite happy to jump into a game where it's very imprecise. So I, I don't expect people with your sort of mindset of games to to adapt to other games like that. I always think, oh, min-maxers must think that our way of running the game is so shit. <laughs> I mean, it also depends, I guess. So um, I had an experience, I guess it was, I can't remember. It would have been like mid 2000, somewhere between 2005 and 2010. A friend of ours ran a fate based game called uh, Spirit of the Century. It's made by mm-hmm. um, Evil Hat Games. And it's a gaming system that's uh, built around the pulp style of, uh, you know, if you've ever watched like uh, the old A Team, was a very pulpy game, a pulpy TV show. Um, it's a. Uh, and the idea was that sometime between uh, World War One and World War II, uh, you're playing a superhero. Um, but it's more of the old Dick Tracy style of superhero. or uh, And you really like the Batman cartoons or comic books sort of where you would leave the game, you would leave an episode on a cliffhanger where it looked like the guy was going to be run over by a vehicle and knocked off a cliff. And then later you would figure out how they survived it or what happened. It turned out the guy was a clone or a body double, or the person had a trap door in their car that he jumped out of something like that. <laughs> um, and you could make um, interesting characters. And one of the things like um, that I had a real problem with, with the beginning of this is like the whole concept of pulp and storytelling is that min maxing you're, you're supposed to fail in good pulp storytelling. In fact, failure is the way that you advance the story. Like a character who never fails isn't interesting to read about. It's a Mary Sue mm-hmm. who's overpowered and you know, they're always going to win. Like one of my friends uh, used to joke that Superman uh, 
was playing a game about talking to other people and like his problem was he could never really be defeated half the time you had to he i think when he was playing like a marvel game he would roll to see if superman would remember which power he had uh because he had so many of them um and that's like it's fun because you're curious about it but it's also fun to read about how he has problems interacting with people in the real world where he can't use his superpowers uh so as a character i tried to min max my way i tried to win everything and it wasn't a fun game and then someone point out look just allow yourself to fail you're not going to die your character's going to be there afterwards allow yourself to fail and embrace the story that creates and i modified my character for the next game we played and they were totally right it was the yeah. best thing i <laughs> i failed i fell i i terrible things happened and like you had the big reveal every once in a while when someone would turn around the whole story the system is based on um a die you roll four dice they're called fudge uh fudge dice and they have either a blank space on the side a plus or a minus I've and, played some fudge games before. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah. You, you can have the, the staggeringly plus four, but usually it's a plus one or minus one. And it, occasionally it's the. Uh, I, that did not go the way I expected it to. Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, in fact, uh, Jacob Wood, who does the Accessible, game, no, Accessible Gaming Quarterly magazine, um, created a game called Saving Able that ran off the fudge dice system yeah and it was fantastic and um like another thing that that system uh did for me is they one of the things you can do is you can spend kind of like poker chips to add bonuses to things but they have to be based off of taglines and the taglines are often like like the james bond uh shaken not stirred post kill pun sort of stuff and like i had a uh, essentially a a street magician um, uh, who could um, change his appearance, do sleight of hand, had a sword. It was basically a, a sword fighting version of Harry Houdini. And <laughs> I love the character. And like one of the things was he didn't actually have magic. And he had just had uh, sleight of hand and stuff like that. And one of the things, one of his taglines was, I hate Hocus Pocus. And the GM could pay you extra extra tokens back so as you spent them he could pay you to take negative results like to do things that he wanted you to do to tell a better story and you would end up with scenarios where i would pretend to have actual magic or interact with magical things and i would be about to do something amazing and the gm would pat pass me a stack of things that would say but but you hate hocus pocus and like Son of a gun. You're right. <laughs> I do. <laughs> and like, do I do I and you would be, get to a bidding scenario where you're like, so I'm you're not willing to do you're not willing to take the negative result for two chips. How about three? Four. <laughs> like, okay. And you know, my character would be tied up and dropped somewhere, and someone else would have to help me, or I'd have to narrate how I got out of it. And it meant for better stories. So in and what's the nice thing is that like I love diving into the kind of the um, the min-maxing, crunchy side of riffs, or uh, I love uh, fight to win, st- out outthink the puzzle, uh, outthink your enemies, uh, find a strategic way around your opponents. Um, but 
there is something to be said about telling a great story in which you succeed and you don't have to worry about the die rolls. Like what Dungeon World does is it takes worrying about the small stuff out. And as a GM and as a player, it means you can just focus on doing the things that you want to to tell a great story. So you still get the same result, but you don't have to worry about the small stuff. And I think there's value in both styles of play. And as a GM, it frees me. I, I don't prepare anything for my games because players never do what I expect them to or want them to. <laughs> uh, so uh, I end up running a lot of stuff where... For, so as a GM, for example, um, there's a move in... Uh, Apocalypse World and Dungeon World have a lot of spinoffs and people that build off their systems. And one of them, one of the basic moves is called... Uh, I mean, there's, there's hack and slash, there's volley for combat... Uh, but there's discern realities, and discern realities is pretty much the reason I love Dungeon World straight uh, as a as a core system, because it's you roll dice, say it's two d six, everything is two d six in Dungeon World, um, unless you're rolling damage or a couple small things, and then um, if you add your relevant attribute modifier, and if you roll if your result is ten or more, you get to ask three questions. And if your result is seven or more, you get to ask one question. And you, the questions are things like, of what, what here is of use to me? What, what happened here? What's going to happen here? What here is not as it appears to be? Who's in control? Um, what, like I said, what here is valuable to me? So it's all the search things, but it's none of the, I tap on the wall with a hammer. Or I very carefully look for marks in the dust to see if they're footprints. And it does mean that players can are maybe a little less creative when it ter- comes to interacting with the environment, but it also means that we skip two hours of I tap on the wall <laughs> with a hammer. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it just, and I tell you what the result is, and there's no arguing about it. You can't redo it afterwards. I'm like, yeah, you, you rolled a six, so mark experience, you don't find anything, and we move on. Um, it, it's a final answer and a dungeon world. And I think a lot of the systems like that are, they, you lose a little bit, but you gain a lot. If you want to tell a good story, um, you can ask but, all mean, my players. You, you touched on a lot, a lot of stuff there. And for example, saying about the, the storytelling with failure, it also, the storytelling comes from the collaborative experience with your party. And when your character succeeds all the time the rest of the party are like well he doesn't need our help so let's just stand back whereas if you're failing the party can step in and help and it feels like more of a group experience but the issue that i find with dnd 5e is what makes it strong is also what makes it weak for me that is once you create a character you're, you're almost a superhero from the beginning now you pretty much have access to everything uh, failure is an option at the beginning, but by the time you get to level 10, it's pretty rare that you'll fail a skill check of most kinds. And I, I find it a little frustrating that way. I do like the storytelling aspect, like you're saying about people going around knocking on stuff and looking. Some people in D&D 5e absolutely love that, but I enjoy some of that crunch, some of the additional mechanics that you're talking about with a lot of dice rolling and modifiers and stuff, which can contribute to storytelling for people that are maybe less imaginative as well um but yeah I, I get what you mean with dungeon world that's a good way to push forward ignore the 
the little stuff, you know, like for example, in, in D and D five E some dungeon masters follow encumbrance and some don't. And again, it, it's your style, but that's a good thing. The, the one really good thing with D and D five E is you can just dump stuff that you don't want to use and it doesn't really affect the game. Yeah, I think that's, so, I mean, comparatively, here's what I would say in, like, the scenario you've presented. The difference is, like, in 5e and a lot of those styles of games, it's up to the GM to create a challenge or yeah. present it. Like, And um, I'll give you, like, two examples. The reason, because it's, it's up to the GM in a lot of ways to make sure that the group has, like, everyone in the group has something to do. Um, I've read a couple of GMing books, and... I, I always like to hear what other GMs find is problematic because uh, sometimes it's not something that I particularly care about. Um, and one of the things that uh, I think it was Robin's Rules of Gaming or something like that. Uh, I can't remember. Or maybe it was the the Lazy GM's The Guide or something like that. But it said, essentially, there are players who just want they're just there so that they can eat chips, drink Mountain Dew, and spend time with their friends. And they don't really care about the game. Yeah. Um, it's just a thing to do together. And if you can identify what people want, you can actually, uh, individual players, you can try and build those components into your campaigns and stories. And I, I think that's a really good insight into an element that I had a problem. I, I ran uh, first edition Exalted for many years. It's probably my favorite of the high fantasy systems by White Wolf and other, other game systems. And it's the game has moved on to, I think, in its third edition right now. but one of the things I really cut my teeth on was if you're running for demigods, basically superheroes in the system, literally you can roll 20 D10s for results. Uh, like it, it was one of the appeals of the system, I think, to a lot of players. But there yeah. was a point at which you just couldn't, on an individual monster, you would not be able to challenge them. And what I found as a GM for scenarios like that that was helpful was one, I, it doesn't matter whether they're mechanically challenged. It matters whether the player feels challenged. And I would describe a monster that they would obviously massacre in two rounds of combat. But if a mouth is coming down a hall and it's open and you can see the grinding teeth of the worm coming towards you and you can't, and you don't know what its level is or its hit points, you feel threatened. And that's all that really matters in that case is that the, if the player feels like their character was threatened or not. Even if they kill it in two yeah. hits, thirty minutes of terror and that adrenaline hit is all that all that matters. And um, the, the one thing I found with saying about tailoring certain parts of the campaign to players, uh, I've found um, recently that the the best thing to do is just to ask the player, like, "Hey, what do you want to do with your character? What what would you like to have, and what do you think is cool? Just tell yeah. me, and I'll I'll figure it out." I mean, and I. Understanding what people want to get out of the game is is super helpful. Uh, not like, do you? I mean, do you care what if your character advances? Do you have a plan? Because when I make a character at first level, I'm thinking every choice I make is either based around how I think my character concept would play out in a mechanical sense, or if it's like a spell choice, like what is the optimal play going to be so that I have a, a versatile character, a useful character at level twenty. Um, somewhere in those between those two extremes, usually both. Yeah, and you, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, man. 
I'm going to say, so basically what you're saying there is you like to start off with like a good base, a good building block, you know, because most first level characters are like really, really squishy, especially anybody in campaigns that I run, you know, and, but you want to make it make sense if they get up to 10th, 15th and 20th level. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm getting from what you're saying. I just want to make sure that my idiot self is understanding. That's right. I mean, the example I would give is uh, it's why I've spent like two days just reading through every spell I can find and double checking how the Warlock class works is Warlocks don't really get to cast that many spells other than their cantrips. Uh, The ones they they do cast, uh, especially at higher levels, are maxed out power, but you need actual spells that scale well. Which means you want something that's either has utility, preferably both, something like Shatter, that adds damage and has an external mechanical effect. Or is it Armor of Agathy? Uh, Is an hour-long spell that adds that both adds temporary hit points, adds more hit points as you get more spell levels, and lets you do damage to people who attack you. It's good for good against hordes. Um, It's the the old use of the the spell Grease. I think is the example that I would or web are two spells that any like long term gamer in D and D world is is familiar with. Like you can get a lot, a lot of, a lot of value out of those two spells depending on what you want to do with them. Right. They're both fire starter. They're both you know present potential fuel. Um, I can't tell you how many forests have been burned down in my games due to players <laughs> using excessive amounts of web over and over again. I hate that spell. <laughs> <laughs> But it's yeah. uh, levitates another one. Like they aren't; they're only as useful as you want them to be. But you, if, as a warlock, I want spells that scale up, and I also want like my cantrips. Oh, that is another thing with fifth edition. I absolutely adore. They make cantrips useful. Mm-hmm. Like they're actual spells now that you can cast all the time. Yeah, and they're super useful. And y- you should pick based on what's going to be useful for you as a, as a player and a character. But also, like, what's fun to do? Like, I'm I'm building a gnome tinkerer. Like, his um, background is someone who's going to fix things. So I want things like mend, but I can't get that as a warlock. So I'll have to pick a different pact so that I can get access to different uh, things later on. And it's fun to build things that both build mechanical advantage into your character, but also tell a story. It's funny that you say that because you can tell a lot of the time from the cantrips that someone picks in D and D five e what kind of player they are if they're narrative or oh or yeah, mechanical yeah. Or mixture of both. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, thaumaturgy as a cantrip is just based around uh, screwing with other people. Oh yeah, like, it's it's just straight up in there. It's like every description is like, how can I mess with everyone around me? <laughs> Woo! You can hear. Uh, I love me personally. I'm a, I'm a mage hand fan because you know you can use yeah. it to yep. mess with people too. They need to add a full fledged damage <laughs> mage hand so you can just slap people all the time. Um, yeah, because I, I've excuse me, I've actually used it in my local session with the character who's no longer with us. Um. He picked up a, I picked up a pile of uh, crap with it and just held it in front of his face right as he walked into it, you know, just for strictly narrative purposes or narrative purposes, you know, because I thought it was funny. 
So, I mean, <laughs> it, it's got its uses, you know, beyond, you know, strictly mechanical. Sure. I mean, it's you can use it for narrative stuff. You can, uh, I mean, it's it's the other cantrip I picked for my Warlock is Mage Hand and Eldritch Bolt. Ah, um, yes. Mage and, great. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's another one, um, like Unseen Servant or Speak with Animals. Uh, if you're if you're willing to uh, remove a couple of potential points of damage from your character's output, you'll gain a ton of versatility and may be able to work around problems, uh, which I consider the hallmark of creative players. They're both players that I love to run for, uh, and I absolutely hate sometimes because you yeah. know if you if you build up a scenario in your head and it's going to play out this way, uh, it often does not. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. personal experience on both sides of the screen there. Yeah, I mean it's um it's one of the reasons that I like Dungeon World a lot in that you so I think there are a lot of we I talked about Rifts before we started the recording um and Rifts is one of those systems like in the old in the nineties where you'd start with this character who was supposedly um, a competent professional in whatever class they picked. In practice, if you weren't a combat class, uh the percentage chances of fixing or accomplishing things changed. And it was very difficult sometimes to get the character mechanically to react the way the book described them as being like, they weren't ever quite, you know, it's like, why is my professional mechanic acting like an intern with a monkey wrench and a, and a large piece of metal? <laughs> like, this is not how I'm supposed to fix computers. I'm, I mean, uh, and Dungeon World fixes that by saying uh, every roll that's not based on damage is going to be 2d6. A 7 or better is a, a 7 to 9 is a qualified success. And that means that you'll get success, but you know, you'll know you have to take a, a small negative consequence or something else will happen. 10 or better is unqualified success. And if you roll, if your result is 6 or less, you mark experience, so you get rewarded for it, but also the GM gets to do something else. And maybe it's advancing the plot of one of the enemies. Maybe it's something bad that happens to you. You don't know. Um, I've had people fail roles, and they're like, why Why didn't anything bad happen? Why did you turn experience? I'm like, you'll find out later. That's fine. <laughs> That's <laughs> very ominous. <laughs> I know, maybe at it is. Get, at least I get rewarded for trying to participate in the game rather than feeling, oh, I, I'm not going to engage because I'm worried of the negative outcome. At least I get the experience. Yeah, but I mean, so um, one of our, the person who introduced Dungeon World to me uh, was me, my, uh, my wife, and his wife at that time. And they, uh, my wife and I would regularly fail rolls. It just happened. Uh, and it's because the more things you try to do, Dungeon World doesn't make you roll unless you're trying to actually affect an outcome that has chance associated with it. If you're just talking to NPCs, you don't roll things. If you're trying to haggle or affect a variable outcome, then you do. If it's uh, a scenario where you're trying to force force an outcome, essentially. And what we found is our characters were advancing very quickly my wife and I, because we failed so much, we get lots of experience. And the other character was playing a druid and would just, was just blowing her way through the scenario, just like winning. Um, and it was great, but you know, she was behind on the advancement, like the level turn. And it's because she was a fully competent character to begin with. And she did things that she was good at. And it really, it meant, 
made for a, a very different kind of experience. Like literally, if you just play to your strengths in Dungeon World, most of the time you're going to advance much slower. Ah, uh, ah, yeah, I understand this now. So it's a scaled system in which uh, you, it's not a scenario where you start out weak. You start out as a full-fledged, competent character. And whatever happens after that is up to you. There's no difference between, in a lot of ways, a fighter and a mage, I mean, other than hit points, in that uh, both of them can roll, and both of them can have high strengths if they decide to pick it that way. Uh, and another thing that changes is, at least in the way you're supposed to run Dungeon World, is you're supposed to go from each person to each person and say, okay, hold that thought for a second. What, ha- what, do you, what do you do? What does this other person do? So you just go around the table, essentially, and there is no, there's no initiative. There's no, uh, you can split the party if you want. I'm just going to, I'm going to spend five minutes on each of you. We're going to narrate your, uh, you know, your combat results or what you choose to do. Uh, it, it makes for a more freeform gaming style where everyone gets it, gets a turn. That's good etiquette as well for any game. Anyone running a game is when someone's doing something, go around and say, okay, yeah, you do that. Let's, let's describe that. Now let's go around. What's everyone else doing at the same time, rather than just letting one person run the story, you know? And, and with the combat, I've thrown away initiative in the last few games I've run, and I've just done um, turn-based, like player, dungeon master, player, dungeon master. And I find that giving the players the opportunity to decide who goes next and what they're going to do gets them to discuss tactics more than when you roll initiative. It's just like, I get my go. I get to go before you. And so I'm going to do whatever I want. Yeah. That, I mean, that's what I try to do, you know, whenever they come to a battle or even in just a regular session, you know, try to give everybody equal opportunity. And something that I've noticed is say this week, somebody will have a little bit more time than others. And, Next week, they won't have as much time as somebody else may get, you know, a little bit more time. But it usually balances out fairly even, at least I think so. Yeah, yeah. I guess it depends on what you want to get out of your game, too. Like, yeah. And that's, that's one of the benefits. Uh, it's why I try to say, uh, this is my preference. This is how I like to play. This is what I found. But it also depends on, like, how you are as a player and a GM. There are some things that work for friends of mine that just don't work for me. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and actually talking about difficulty in uh, your games and creating it with the game system available, like we joke a lot that Richard kills his party, but I mean, you know, Richard, you haven't really had any trouble in presenting difficulty in D&D 5e, have you? You've I don't. Um, and like I told the players, you know, I'll usually roll dice like whenever I'm taking notes just in case, you know, something happens or they come to a point because I don't want it to be my decision, you know, but at the same time, I don't have a problem with it being my decision. But I, I mean, heck, I like to roll dice too, you know, and see the outcomes. And if it's a blizzard that lasts for a max of eight hours, you know, in the campaign, then it's a blizzard that lasts eight hours in the campaign, you know, if they die. They die. I did. I did hold their hand in in the first session because they were level one, and I think the max hit points was like ten. <laughs> you know, maybe eleven. Yeah. Um, I'd have to look back at their character sheets at the time. You know, and that's not fair to them. But at the same time, you know, they could have kept going. You know, but they did a smart thing by hunkering down in an area 
And I felt that that should be rewarded for their smart, you know, thinking, if that makes sense. Yeah, they were stuck in that blizzard and you you wanted to reward them. But but what I mean is that you your style of play is that you're like, here's here's the game mechanics and I'm going to abide by those. And that's how I like to run the game. And if that's how you enjoy it, then we're going to have a fun time and you set that at the beginning of your campaign for Rhyme of the Frost Maiden, right? Yes, and if you don't like it, um, you know, I can hit disconnect on you and, and kick your ass out of the out of the channel. If you do like it, you know <laughs> if you do like it, by all means feel free to stay because your character's gonna die anyway. <laughs> but yeah, I see what you mean now. And I mean that's that's how it is. This is what's gonna happen. If you like it, stay. If you're not, then you know, we'll find somebody else. You're not yeah, I mean, gonna be I, an asshole or anything, but that's how I like to run it. I mean, that's one of the one of the things about like riffs, and um, I'm gonna say like I, I talked before about how sometimes you value the experience based on the amount of time you put into something. Yeah, um, yeah. whether that's a game or something, it's also for character creation. Like the more time it takes me to make a character, and the, it, it determines how much I'm vested in that character. And if I take six hours to make a character, not because I'm choosing to, but because there are a lot of choices and I have to read through every equipment list to try and maximize my God. Second edition D was a mess. <laughs> you know, like, like how do I get the most out of 150 gold when I have 3000 pieces of equipment to choose from? Um, and like in that case, if I've spent six hours and I die in the first two games, I'm going to be upset. Right. Or like, and maybe, and you know, it's different if you expect it, but then there are games like dungeon call classics where you make, eight characters as starting and you start as a horde and they're all zero level and the ones you keep are the ones who live through the first scenario <laughs> so oh my god uh i mean it's there's lots of random stuff out there depending on how people want to approach it and my, uh, at least for me what i tell people is i want i just want to know what kind of game i'm getting into and if the answer is that the gm literally doesn't care and it's up to me to survive. And if I choose to fight the dragon, I'm going to lose. Yeah. It's on me. That's good to know. I mean, it means I'm going to be a lot less picky. It also let, it's why I like going to cons and doing like one shots because I don't have to worry about that character tomorrow. I just have to figure out what I'm going to do for the next four hours. And it means you'll take more risks. I found that with the mini campaigns I run, I've just run one for wrath and glory and i'm doing one for alien rpg again in a month or so and when i say to people like this is going to be four to eight sessions and here's your character and you could die they're a little more reckless but knowing that they can die they think about their decisions a lot of dnd 5e podcasts i'll listen to a lot of different ones to try and get ideas or to hear how they play it and it rarely feels like anyone is in danger in a lot of them and i think to myself well there's not really any weight to the decisions you're making because there's no consequence really i mean the the, the ultimate consequence in D or any well most tabletop role-playing games is is that you die <laughs> yeah i mean that's something else i at least i've taken from dungeon world is the the in my last campaign i ran a story arc for uh, my my players and they the one barbarian just kept throwing himself taunting it was his it was a stand up move Ta- taunted everything yeah yeah yep, yep. <laughs> he's, in, he's in my group yep halfling barbarian taunt everything 
attack everything, and if it involves talking, defer to the mage. And it was yeah. great. He was a fantastic little guy, little halfling with a mild Mexican accent. It was fantastic. It was a it was a great character. Um, and he died twice. Uh, once because he actually died, and the second time because when he made a bargain with death and he broke it, death came back and yanked it back and made another bargain with him that was worse. <laughs> you know, and it's it's one of those weird scenarios where sometimes characters die. It's nice to know you're at risk, uh, or at least feel that way. And I know from like one of the things that uh, the Apocalypse World and Dungeon World system does is you start off with a certain amount of hit points plus your constitution. And that's it. You don't get more hit points as you level up. So, uh, you know, the whole thing is scaled down. Damage is less because you don't have the massive modifiers. But, you know, the most you're going to run into with that is around 28 or 30 hit points for a character. Uh, and for a normal D&D game, that's... Unless you have a lot of armor or magical defenses, that's really not that much. No. And you can always find a game system that tailors to the style that you want to play. Like D&D 5e is definitely, once you're past level 3 or 4, you start to get breach that I'm I'm pretty safe to an extent. It's only after several bad decisions that I'm going to be in a bad way. Where if you want a game that holds those consequences and you, know, you can pick a different game system, I, I think it frustrates me when people complain about D&D 5e for the mechanical arrangement of it. And it's like, well, there, there are other games you can go and play. Sure. Uh, I think it was Ever Everwind, Evervale, Ever... Uh, it was a game that was put up by, I believe it was Wizards of the Coast, that's completely diceless. There are no mechanics. Um, you pick powers. Uh, like, there's, there's as many, or you can do something like Rollmaster, uh, which is chart based, uh, and or some of the more complex games, uh, the what is it, uh, Inquisitor, or um, some of the Games Workshop products that were put out um, by a couple of people that were they're also heavily chart based. Uh, Hero, formerly known as Champions, is just it's a it's a good game, but man, the system is very mechanically intensive. And if you want that, you can get that very easily. You can also go for uh, scaled-down systems. As I get older, I just want to tell a good story. I want people to have a good time. And I only, I don't want to, I, I don't, I, maybe this is a function of being in my 40s, but I personally don't, I can't manage a 12-hour gaming session anymore. No. It's just <laughs> not in me. Oh, for one thing, I mean, it's, 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 I it there are variables that come into play. I'm gonna fall asleep or I'm gonna consume <laughs> enough alcohol or I'm gonna consume enough alcohol that no one's gonna want to play in the game. Or uh, you know, my cat's gonna have a problem, or uh one of my players is gonna get upset. It's just not worth it. So finding simpler systems where we're not arguing over rules for four hours uh makes it so that I wanna I mean my games we used to just when I was in college, we would sign up for a local, uh, I guess you'd call it like a, a cabin. And we would start, by we, I as the GM would start at whatever time we got there. And we would go till sunup or more. A friend's lake house, we do the same thing. We just game until we couldn't anymore. Go to sleep or pass out, as the case may be. Wake up, uh, 
by the local grocery store out of pierogi, bacon, and eggs. And, <laughs> you know, there would be, uh, at the end of each session, at the end of each uh, weekend, uh, you would see, like, the empty bottles of, of liquor, the 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 bones of the T-bone steaks that have been consumed and the cat and the giant pyramid of beer cans. And it would literally, we would game until we couldn't anymore wake up and do it all over again. I can't do that anymore. So I want so systems you, that I mean to ext- extract the most value out of the very limited time that I'm willing to do it. So that that's what I was going to say is that those long weekends that there's a lot of fluff in there. There's a lot of, of breaking stuff down as you say arguing over rules and when you when you've only got three hours you're like okay this and this doesn't matter and you know we we want to play a game that embraces this part of it Uh, and you you do you find it's a cleaner experience playing a shorter session like that um it is if you make it that way uh i've done um i've done some games where that's not necessarily the case i uh, one of the uh, systems that I got into for several years called Dragon Storm, which is a kind of a cross between Magic: The Gathering and a role playing game. Uh, Ooh. You, yeah, I mean, originally it was a a game that was published right around the time uh, in the late '90s that used collectible. Literally, you would buy packs of cards, and your character was a set of cards that you added, but you had to buy, uh, you know, sight unseen uh, packs of cards to make it work. And then now you can buy the the cards are available for download or purchase and but uh it, it was also a living rule system in which a character could play in one gm or you know uh warden's game and then go to a different gm and take the same character and it would advance in different games uh it was a very it's a very interesting system in which you're playing it's literally a living world in which your character is a living character and your character would play with other characters who did things in certain adventures it led to a very episodic style of play yeah, uh, which I found interesting. Um, I did it over Skype um, before I was, you know, before Discord, like in the early two thousands. Um, it was fun, but uh, you ended up having to very much dumb. I won't not dumb down. You needed. To, I found that like the longer sort of rambling storylines that I was used to running for older game settings didn't work very well because you only had four hours and if you didn't finish the story, it was going to be hard to get all your players back again to continue it, to get to a a narrative point where you could finish it. And you felt okay with the result. Even if you're running a long-term campaign, like people could play in it, but you still wanted people generally to have some form of closure at the end of each session. Yeah. So now, yeah, if you're going to do three, three hours, you want to make sure you get some, I, I want to get some real value out of it. And I think it does force me as a GM to condense down what I want players to do or pick a stopping point um, where I'm like, okay, this is a good point to stop. And like, I never used to think about that. Like we stopped when I could not stand on my feet anymore, or keep my eyes open. <laughs> like That was it. And like, that's, that's different than, than my approach now. And I think it's different for players too. Uh, it's yeah, something I, to do. I definitely find myself thinking about where's where's a good place to leave here. There's maybe a cliffhanger or maybe a nice clean cut to to move on to next week, rather than just oh, I think I've had enough. I, I I feel like I can put more energy into it and then sort of walk away feeling good about it, rather than oh, you know, should I have cut it off here? Should I have changed this? Should I have done that? And I can stay focused for longer. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, 
I definitely agree with that. And it's it's also one of the scenarios I'm like, uh, as I've told my friends, like I if I die, all right, well, uh, I'm gonna walk away. Especially now with COVID, where everyone's locked down and we're sitting here in like different parts of the country and playing. I'm like, all right, well, <laughs> I just put myself on mute. I'm gonna go get a snack or you know, talk to my wife or listen to you guys and laugh in the background or heckle in the chat. And like, there's no downside to this. <laughs> I've got wireless headphones. So I just, yeah, I'll wander off. Oh. So what um, game would you consider to be your, your favorite of all time? I know that's a pretty loaded question and it changes with how you're, you're feeling at the time, but you know, you clearly have a lot of experience with a variety of games that, do you have any top picks or something that you'd love to go back to that you haven't got the chance? I mean, okay, so those are like three or four questions. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, Jim can't count, so, you know. I That's true, yeah. I have to take my socks off to count over 10. I mean, it's because he has to convert to the metric system. This is true. This is true. You bloody colonials. <laughs> uh, Imperial weights and measures for, for life. Uh, what I would so if there was a game that I wanted, I've never had a chance to play or run in that I really wanted to is uh, it's one called Hellas. Um, I went to Gen Con um, back when you know we could meet in person and do stuff. And my first trip for them for someone who's never been there, like it's you submit an event and then people sign up for your events. They buy tickets, and it's often a lottery system. But you walk in. And there are hundreds. It's a, it starts Thursday and night, and it goes till Sunday night. And literally, there are people running games, board games, video games, role-playing games, games that you've never heard of. Um, they have live-action games where you walk in. I, I went in with, they had a simulator with uh, Airsoft where you were walking into a space station, and they had sound effects and actors playing, char- playing characters. Oh, my um, God. I mean, there's there's all sorts of stuff there. Um, there's cosplay. There's a, a merchant's hall like you've never seen before. And I, the thing I wanted to do, because I, I GM'd for a long time at that point. The game, I wanted to see other games. Uh, I wanted to see what other games were out there. And I wanted to see what was interesting. And one of the games, because like the really popular stuff uh, sold out very quickly. And I ended up... Uh, to my advantage, ended up having to pick from obscure things that no one had heard of before. And one of them was a game called Hellas. And it's a game that's designed to be played through multiple generations of your family. Like, not you personally, but your character dies, and then the next generation you play that. And it's a Roman theme that's been converted to high science fiction. So the Hellenic uh, um, the Carthaginians essentially or um, the Spartans would be characters who walked around with flaming swords and power armor or um, <laughs> instead of warp warp travel you would sort of transition in space uh, into a uh, into a secondary universe in which the if you wanted to travel faster you had to go to the, uh, the, the deeper parts of the sea but there were bigger monsters like Scylla and Charybdis. And uh, um, they had... So, you know, the the faster you wanted to go between univ- uh, between areas, the more danger you undertook. They had uh, people who would 
blind themselves and had a crystal sphere that floated around them to allow them foretell the future. There was an entire bug race that um, dressed up as human heroes uh, to be accepted into society and was an entire warrior. (laughs) There was a subset of like this one race of octopus people that were big into technology and they would, they would walk around in little powered uh, powered suits of uh, mechanoid creatures. And um, they had fairy, fairy creatures who were big into um, emotional manipulation and pheromones and stuff. And all of it existed in this very nice cohesive whole. Someone who read um, uh, the original uh, mythology back in back when I took Latin in the nineties. Uh, it's one of those scenarios where it's a game that had luscious detail, uh, gorgeous play, and I got to play it with the designer who ran it, um, and I got to build a character. Oh, cool. Uh, and if you've ever if you've ever read the Iliad or um, the Aeneid or uh, just gone through any of those stories and said, I don't want to do the Kevin Zorbo, Hercules, Xena version of mythology. I want to play the tragic. I want to give it the love and uh, respect that it deserves. It's a weird combination of all the the scientific sci-fi tropes that you've never, you know, that you would expect would make it funny, like kind of like galaxy quest style, but then yeah. serious and, and glorious and rich in a way that I, I wish I had found a group that was, that wanted to play. Cause a lot of my groups just evolve into people and making dick and fart jokes. You know, it's, it's, we all know each other. We all, are inside. yeah, I mean, we have, <laughs> but it's, 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 it's not, uh, I mean, I got part of my degree from college was was drama based, and I really like seeing people organically pl- not like decide what the outcome of the story is going to be, but being pla- uh, placed with a decision in front of you, decide organically how are you going to do that? Romeo, yeah, Romeo, yeah. wherefore art thou? And Romeo walks in, and it's not a all right, and now we're you know we're fade to black or we're in the bedroom. It's how does that emotional interaction work out? Um, and that's the kind of game that, that Hellas is to me. Um, I wish I could go back uh, and either play it with someone running it who would give it that kind of treatment or someone who uh, run it for a group of people who really wanted to make a really good shot at it. Um, in terms of the game that I uh, basically has my heart, um, that's going to be Exalted First Edition um, from White Wolf. It was their first real jump into back when White Wolf, White Wolf was White Wolf in like high fantasy. A friend of mine play tested it before it was published, um, before we even met, actually. And it's one of those games where I've told so many stories running it. I it's the longest campaign. I think it was almost like ten years. I ran for for oh play. my god, yeah. Uh, and you know there are parts of it where the mechanics were terrible. Um, I made some mistakes as a GM. People got interesting things. Uh, NPCs developed. My wife loved it. Um, it's still she still refers back to her character in that. You know, if you've ever had that one game where you want to tell everyone else about it and no one else gets it because they weren't there, because yeah. it's super important to you and no one's like I, I wasn't there. It's like I mean, it's just like another fantasy game, right? Like no, no, it wasn't another fantasy game. 
That's that's what exalted <laughs> was to me. Uh, I've read I through the exalted rules after you recommended it for the range bands, um, and I read through it. It, it sounds like combat, and it is simplified to what you were talking about. Where there's a bit of strategy there, but not enough that it bogs down the the mechanics. Yeah, so you're looking at third edition, um, which I have, uh, and again. It's one of those game systems where I appreciate what they tried to do, um, but I think they're the thing is like they have a different mechanical system for everything: uh, crafting spells, uh, crafting magical items, social interactions. It's all they all have their own little like mini game that you're playing, uh, governing mm. cities. All of it is different, and I want to. I do not have enough brain power to manage that many systems. No. Um, you mean that they don't function alongside one another? They're different games altogether within it. I, it that's the way it feels to me as a GM. Um, I I want to be able to run it. Uh, I just don't think I have the capacity to do it. Uh, and it's a shame because reading through the main rulebook, it's probably the most evocative setting that White Wolf, White Wolf has published. Um, and I've run a lot in Vampire Dark Ages, uh, Vampire Modern a little bit. Uh, I still have all the original uh, Vampire Dark Ages books and other things, but like Exalted is the one. If you want to tell like high fantasy, big big stories, uh, with anime style characters, uh, Exalted is the is the game that I would jump to immediately. It's it's people wielding ten foot long swords that are three feet wide, uh, mecha power armor that's powered by by energy crystals. Uh, you know, different types of exalted with different different abilities. It's it's just an incredible, uh, it's an incredible high level system. But in order to be able to tell those kinds of stories, you also have to be able as a GM to dig into the mechanics and make it work. And I, did, I mean, I, I've backed every one of their Kickstarters because I want them to keep publishing material. But there's a little part of me that really hopes that someone with some sanity says, okay. Uh, I, we're going to dumb some of these down for the rest of you the mortals who maybe don't want to read and memorize 60,000 page, 60, pages of rules. Yeah, I think a good way around that sort of stuff is obviously having uniformity so that stuff coincides better, but making stuff at a, a basic level and then adding the other stuff as optional is what I enjoy in games like that, where it's like, here's a bunch of stuff, but you know, if you just want to run it very simply... You can just do this. <laughs> yeah, and it, and someone who's visually impaired, like uh, I. So one of the things I think I've talked about in uh, in the in the Discord chat is there's a big difference between what I read and what I can actually use when I'm running and playing. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you can give me an, a quote accessible PDF unquote, but I in the middle of play I cannot be listening to Jaws the players um, narrating and reading. I don't have downtime as a GM. Uh, and as a player, I need to keep track of other stuff too. So I can't listen to Jaws reading me a PDF of uh, of the rules on social interactions and look up a reference point while, uh, while things are going on. And that's not because I can't do it. It's because it's too much input for me to keep track of. So I tend to, with virtual gaming or in person, I tend to uh, put things together into short, like chunks. Uh, I love Excel or usually Google Sheets because that's where I put most of my characters. Yeah. Uh, and 
you know, it's nice to be able to just arrow down to a cell and says constitution, and I can move over. I'm like, okay, what's my value? What's my modifier? But if I don't want to do that, I can just arrow down quickly, and I basically have a quick sheet that lets me jump through the basic details very quickly and find information. Um, I like, I don't know how you, how do you guys balance that out? Like, how do you balance between, I have an infinite amount of information, which I, I may need at any <laughs> given time. And uh, I have a very short time frame, and I need to be able to get quickly. And I'm like, I can't, I can't reach out to a player and say, hey, can you look up this reference for me? You know? Do you want to go fast, Richard? <laughs> I mean, mine's pretty simple. I tell them to shut the hell up. I'm looking up something. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know what, what Richard does. He does the same thing that I do where he over-prepares. And, and I have... Word document. Um, like I'm following an, an adventure at the moment for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, and I I take the parts of the adventure, I put it into a Word document. I'm only one session ahead at any time, so that if they diverge, I know somewhat how to prepare. And then any major rules I'm not familiar with that I have to include, I write them at the bottom of the document and link them at that part. I put all the NPC information in there, link that within the story frame so I can just select stuff and jump to it. But I mean, I, I, I ask people I, and I'll just say to them as well, you know, like, well, what do you think? You know, they, they say, Oh, I, I say this to someone. I'm like, well, which, which skill do you think would be relevant to that scenario? Or, you know, do you want to tell us what you need to do? But what, what do you think, Richard? Um, well, I am really blessed in that aspect because I do have Adrian who is sighted. So, he nine times out of ten will be looking up something if I like hesitate or say, let me look that up and he'll you know, he'll look it up while I can keep going. Uh but I'm I'm like Jim there. I I take like an obsessive amount of notes. Uh I have um <laughs> I have different uh word document or word pad documents um because they tend to load quicker for me. Uh and I can, Same. you know, do a, like a control F to find certain things. Um, like I'll label like an NPC, for instance, I'll do like three asterisks, you know, and I know whenever I type in to find three asterisks, that's exactly where it's carrying me. You know, my only, my only trouble is, and I wish I could find a program that would do this, but I haven't been able to yet is I have to open up like five or six different WordPad documents. I wish I could find a program like they used to be called Ed Sharp that would open 10, 15 different documents, but it was all in like one screen. You know, you could, you know, control tab through them and move to a different document. Otherwise, I'm constantly alt tabbing to try to find the document that's open. And that's, that's what's a headache for me. But for like battles and all, I'll do, um, like say villain one, you know, I'll do their their attacks, you know, their weapons, their damage. I don't usually type down like their strength or anything because, you know, it fills it up too much. I do bare basics and then yeah. whenever they come to battle, I can access that quickly, you know, and go on through the battle. But that's how yeah. that's how I handle it. I can see that. I mean I know like one of the things that I've done is um system resource documents, SRDs. Mm-hmm. Um, are super useful if you is a GM or player. Uh, it's one of the reasons I use my Chromebook a lot because 
all my information is is virtual. Uh, I don't have to worry about saving a document or something like it's it's all in the cloud anyway. So system yeah. resource documents are super useful because you can just go there. It's free. You can easily check into the information and grab what you need. Uh, but, you know, but the side effect of that is kind of a net connection and. Uh, I don't. Uh, like, I, I don't think uh, it's one of the reasons I tend not to. I love playing in with GMs who work with modules. Uh, as a as a GM, I just I just don't. I don't like being tied down to. It's the way I get around that is just by avoiding the whole. Uh, you're in Greyhawk here. You're in. Uh, you know. You're in Waterdeep, in um, uh, Forgotten Realms. Like I. Yep. We're just here. Uh huh. <laughs> and that's my. I mean, literally, most of my campaigns have been. I give you the storyline. I give you the hook. Um, and Dungeon World for me has worked well for that because it forces uh, in the initial character development, you build bonds with everyone so the group is, starts out that way. Yeah, I really like that. When you uh, showed us Dungeon World and I was looking into it, I was like, that's a really cool idea to give the party a reason to be together. Whereas in yeah. D&D, it's like, I'm an edgelord. I don't need any of you. It's like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> You're in. I mean, you I, meet in the tavern, you know. <laughs> see, I I hate that. Like, it's great. It's like if you want to play a campy style, but like the elf, the dwarf, uh, and the human, like all meet in a bar, and the mayor comes in and said the town's being attacked. I got them. Can you guys help? Hey, and like this is the scenario that every fantasy p- person, is, every GM is taught. Like, this is how you're supposed to start the group, and like somehow. <laughs> They'll decide through shared suffering, resource expenditure, killing shit, getting shit, and looting shit that they will become a group. I'm like that. That just doesn't work for me. Uh, uh, I, I'd it's love terrible. Her, I'd love for a player one time to say, you know, like you meet in the bar, the mayor comes in, oh, the dragon's attacking us, and have a dwarf because I just picture it being a dwarf. Yeah, well, you're fucked then. You know. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> yeah. Guess you're not going to need this keg after all, huh? I'll take it with me. <laughs> There's a game I'm running now. I, I just relocate. said to them, uh, you know, like, here's what your characters want to do. They Here's where they meet. Everything else is up to you. Like, you, uh, how you got there is up to you while you're pursuing this particular, um, you know, quest is is entirely up to you whether it's money or this or that and then after that you know you you guys can decide but at least they're all on the same page and they have a common goal because i found before in the past that trying to throw people into a game and then i'm trying to link them together and sell them on something and i'm like i'm gonna try and just say to you guys like here's what your plan is and then it you know do what you want yeah. I don't know and if you, it'll work. I guess we'll see. <laughs> but you always have that one character that either won't follow directions or like, <laughs> I don't like people, but people really should like me. I'm a very interesting person if you bother uh, to check beneath the gruff exterior. Uh-huh. Like, uh, I actually stand over here in a corner and find a table by myself and hope that someone will find me interesting enough to talk to me. Like, what do you mean? Why can't I be uh, part of the group? I'm like, because you've been hiding in a corner. And yeah. I don't see why anyone would like you. <laughs> Yeah, I, um, I actually uh, Richard came into <laughs> my my last D and D campaign late, and he did a you did a great job of integrating with the party because Richard knew that if I want these guys to like my character, then I have to find out what their goals are and then support them to do that. Uh, and by doing that, they were like, "Oh, this guy's cool." Yeah, even yeah. though he was an evil bastard. I mean, you know, <laughs> secretly, yeah. 
Yeah, but I mean, that's what you have to do, and ultimately you have the same goals if you're joining the party. So why not support them? I mean, otherwise you're doing it by yourself. Yeah, you know? I think Dungeon World and um, the other game that strangely helped with that was uh, Rogue Trader, the Games Workshop game. Um, I think I even, we scanned it and someone else edited it for us, but it's on uh, Bookshare. Uh, it was the Ooh. old uh, Rogue Trader. Yeah, the whole text, if it's, uh, it should be there. Some lovely um, percentile dice. <laughs> oh, you're killing me, man. You're killing me. <laughs> but it's it's true. But the what they did was they had um they had character development and the character development um had people going through different basic sections in their back history, like where they got part of their military training or something. And the characters would encounter each other at different parts during this in in the sort of diagram of their backstory. And you got to say like what how I met this person and how that interaction went. Uh, I feel like Dungeon World does the same thing, and it presupposes that you're a group to begin with, and it's up to you guys to explain it. And it, when you ask the characters, hey, uh, this bond that you guys have together says, I I have seen in prophecy that this character will do this. Like, what does that mean to you? Or where did you meet when when you heard this prophecy? And it builds, it means that the characters then, by the time you're done, like the, all the characters are going, yeah, yeah, this is how this happened, or I really hate you, or this didn't work well, <laughs> or I don't really trust you. I mean, you're, you're that, uh, uh, or like we have this rivalry going on where I'm, I'm the one who has to pay for dinner or whatever. It doesn't matter. It's that l- those little details that it, the, the characters don't even think about whether they want to join the group. They think about how the group works to begin with, and in, by yeah presupposing that there there's a functional organism or dysfunctional in some way uh you end up with uh half the time they just walk into the adventure or not even realizing that they've already done most of the work for the gm and it makes for a very different experience you got me really more players as well yeah i mean i've I've had players that even though i put them in positions where their characters are intended to hate each other like in in wrath and gloria had a uh, like the adversaries narratively but the two players work together to embrace that rival whereas you'd get some players who are like i'm intentionally gonna fuck you over because that that's what my character would do and it's like I, you're saying that's what your character would do but you're just being an arsehole <laughs> <laughs> i mean you saw that i mean you saw that a lot in like the old vampire games from white wolf where if you read the material um nobody everybody was supposed to be uh sociopathically dedicated to their own survival or advancement typically both and there was very little reason for people other than just randomly falling in love or a shared enemy. There wasn't a lot of reason for people to develop strong long-term relationships. I mean, you're talking about predators who, uh, and, and the, the emotion was not supposed to happen over like the period of a couple of weeks or months. Like you were supposed to advance through long-term plotting and a personal advancement over the period of decades or centuries. I, I always found that that juxtaposition not to work very well because the characters were always disruptive, always would move for immediate change 
either by a byproduct of their choices or through direct decapitation of the person at the top. <laughs> That's the way it's supposed to be. I mean, fucking head off. I mean, <laughs> and if you had to ask, like after a while, like so, this antediluvian over here, or this character, you know, this third generation or whatever uh, Ventru who's in charge, or Lasombra or whatever clan that they're part of, like. How did they get to this position, and why is it so static if a bunch of neonates who are like eighth or ninth generation can just walk in and and run the place? Like, I as a GM have to figure out why someone else who's more capable than them hasn't already done this. And it can't be like I, I this is one of like my tropes as a GM that I've I've tried to work through. It's one of the reasons I don't like running supernatural in modern settings, because there's there's that one guy. And if it's not me, it's going to be another player who will say, well, in reality, all I have to do is buy this from the hardware store and I can affect this result. And like, and they're like, well, your character doesn't know. And I'm like, well, I can do it here. I'll put it through Google. Look. <laughs> I'm like, son of a bitch. He's right. You can figure out how to lockpick on Google. <laughs> oh, Google uh, like, ruins everything. <laughs> I mean, it. It's the the internet is fantastic, but it's like so. The the anarchist cookbook is out there. There's stuff like the poor man's James Bond. Like you can, as a if you want to in your personal life, develop as a as a non adventurer. You can develop a lot of skills, basic chemistry work that you can do in your kitchen. I mean, there's stuff out there for you to to deal with most problems. Like alchemical silver is not that difficult to get hold of. <laughs> like, I, I think I, then you, and, you'd have to scale the problem, right? You'd have to make a a bigger problem. If everyone has access to this base knowledge, then you need to make it more complex, maybe. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that's right. But I mean, my my larger point is that um, the supernatural isn't so interesting when technology can be a, a basic person with interest in technology or a supernatural with interest in technology can use uh what is it someone said in one of my uh, in one of the games I was playing they were like well they ran into a I can't remember why but it was it was um we were we were both players and he ran into uh a scenario where he found a claymore mine and the gm rightly pointed out that the character had no military background whatsoever and he's like yeah, but I've watched all these Vietnam movies and they use claymores like this all the time. And that's like, and another another player who is uh, in person had actually been in the military is like, yeah, it's pretty much accurate. And they're like, God damn it! <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, uh, you as yeah. a GM, you either have to make an incredibly, uh, like a, a, an untenable stand at that point saying, well, practically speaking, your character doesn't. And the other one's like, and you're saying, like, as a, as a role player saying, well, really, I know, my player knows, uh, my player, my character figured this out, and I'm like, well, how do you argue against that? I mean, the, the obvious argument to me, mechanically, is because you as a character figured that out in the modern day doesn't mean your player or your character under stress in this moment can put all these things together and make it work right. Just because you have the knowledge doesn't mean you have the practical experience. But yeah, I had that the other week where I had a player who was they were getting a coach and the drivers had had a heavy night of drinking and fell asleep and the horses just came to a standstill so one of the players was like well i'll take the reins and i'll i'll, uh, I'll drive these horses and i was like okay well you know make this test and you're going to have this penalty and someone was like 
well, why does he have a penalty? And I was like, well, have you have you ever driven a coach before? And he's like, no. And I was like, well, there you go. Right? <laughs> 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 what else could I say? Uh, yeah. No. No. The answer is no. You can't do it. I give I mean, him that little bit of hope by just <laughs> you can roll dice, and then you crush it. <laughs> Jim gives some hope. I just straight up say no, no, because I say no. Yeah, it's and tough it's... It... oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say like there's a, there's this whole thing with the tabletop role playing games where you know like Richard's played in my games, I played in his, and I feel that both of us are pretty supportive dungeon masters or game masters and um there's this whole narrative nowadays of oh never say no to your players and so but sometimes you have to because the 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 world that you're creating or or the um situation just requires you to say hey look no you you can't do that yeah well i mean go ahead no go ahead all right i was going to say that i feel like a lot of that is that our society nowadays tells people it doesn't like telling people no and yeah. we try to push that into games and what we've what that leads to without the you know obvious social commentary that goes along with that is that as a gm you get players who don't and i used to be one of these people I'm like i consider failure failing like failure as a character mm-hmm. is failing in me as a player and i no longer feel that way because people have shown me the error of my ways but it it leads if you can embrace failure or limitations as a you know, as a player or character, you'll find that I think it you le- it leads to better stories. It means that other characters are useful. Um, it means that other NP you have to interact with NPCs and the narrative to accomplish goals. Um, one of the games that we played was um, uh, it's called My Life with Master, and it's not a role playing game in the campaign sense. It's a storytelling game that you play over one or two sessions where. You're all minions of this one, like Frankenstein or some creature. And by the way, this is a very dark, it's not a nice game. Uh, you're not good people in this, generally speaking. Mm. Um, and you determine whether or not in the game, like one person runs it as a GM and the other players are all trying to, uh, you're all trying to accomplish some goal. Either you're becoming more monstrous or you're becoming more humane. And uh, you will roll whether or not you succeed at the beginning of the session of the, of the scene. And then the GM will tell you uh, if you fail, what's actually going to happen. And then you have to play out your own failure. And in the beginning, I found this very, very difficult to manage mentally because I had a, the objective is to win. And I was like, but I want to do this. And like, now you're telling me I can't do this. Like, not that my character wasn't capable of it, but you're telling me the story doesn't work this way. I'm not allowed to pursue the option, which I find to be most optimal. And yeah. being placed that position, like it's literally storytelling. You're like, well, I, at, and you know, you lead to weird scenarios in which I think one time the, the rest of us were trying to, our master told us to build a new, better body from, people with better body parts uh and <laughs> my wife at one point was uh figuring out how to get this guy to drink the you know drink the food or drink the tea or something that would put him unconscious so we could harvest his brain for the, for the piece and it was it was not a 
it was a very disturbing moment. It wasn't one of those, because one, my character did not want to do it. I personally didn't want to do it. And the other two players were like, yeah, let's do the evil thing. And it was one of those break moments where I was like, you know, sometimes you just have to embrace the fact that GM says no. And it can lead to great storytelling if you embrace it. Now, if the pl- I guess if the GM says no all the time, and it's just like the GM telling you how the story is going to play out, that's not fun. But uh, players and characters, I mean, the whole reason we have different classes in D&D is because they're things that you can't do or things you don't know about. Yeah, there's a big difference between telling people narrative outcome uh, and taking narrative control over their character, which, you know, I... I never do unless I unless I explicitly say to someone, look, to tell out this next part is okay if I take, you know, liberty with your character for just a moment, there'll be no negative outcome. But if there's a negative outcome or some kind of narrative decision, it should be up to the player. And, you know, I I get what you're saying, like saying no all the time to the point where you're railroading them and then just getting them to do what you want. That's not fun. It's not. Yeah, but I mean. Uh, you guys, you kill people all the time, right? Or at least occasionally, like not in, all the time. Not all the time. That sounds no. like a defensive. That that sounded very defensive. <laughs> <laughs> it's all their fault. <laughs> not me. <laughs> it, it's not personal, right? Some of the time it is personal, <laughs> but no. I mean, um, I see what y'all are saying. You know, I try not to railroad them, you know, and I think I do a fairly good job of not. But, I mean, there's just sometimes that, you know, you can't do something. Like, oh, I'm going to jump off this mountain and fly. No, you can't. You know, you're going to fall. You know, and stupid stuff like that. Because, I, I mean, I've had some players that, oh, I want to do this. No, you can't. Yeah, and, and, and they'll get upset. You know, well, you're not you're not doing the game right. I'm following the rules right here. It says I am the dungeon master, and it's called my, fucking gravity. Yeah, you know, and <laughs> this isn't the rules. This is physics. Is final. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it says my decision is final. So, um, no. I mean that's, but I mean that's just how it goes sometimes. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's also important to distinguish, like when a character is being railroaded. It depends on the setting, and like there, th- I've talked about pulp games before, where the whole thing is like you literally sometimes tell a player like, "Here's how you're going to fail in this scenario," and we're going to narrate how you succeed out based on your previous failure in the next in the next scene. That's yeah. different than s- me telling you that there's a chance of you driving the carriage, letting you roll when I already know damn well you're not going to be able to do it. That's yeah. not fair. To the, that's not fair to the player. It's better for me just to say no. Um, and like I, I don't know. To me, there's like a con- there's a social contract between the characters and the and the GM, and it runs something like I have to play by the rules most of the time, so that when I choose to break the rules for narrative or other purposes, they believe that it's for a good reason or that the mechanics in some way justify it. And like sometimes uh, I'll just make a mistake in rules. It happens. Yeah, GM, Every GM does it. And GM, you need to edit that part out. <laughs> we don't need to I mean, a lot of times they won't. I'll say someone will say, like, realistically, that's not how that's not how magic works. Like the player, the character will sit down and say, I don't understand why this happened. I cast detect magic, and this is happening, but I should be able to detect magic in this case. And a lot of cases, my reaction as a GM is then, you know, that's true. You should ask why that's the case. 
And it leads to me having to change the story. But it means that often, like, I think my wife's favorite example was uh, in one of the Exalted games that she played. She was like, she rolled this ridiculous perception check. And the GM was like, why are you rolling for perception scale? I'm like, well, I'm looking like maybe there's a hidden ship behind our ship. And the GM's response was, yeah, you know what? There is. And that was how the game moved on. So yes and no, I guess, are fluid concepts. But uh, I just just don't like it when GMs give people hope of something like as if they're rolling, given the opportunity to roll as if the outcome could be positive. Like they could wave their arms fast enough to fly. You're not going to be able to do that. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Like if there was zero chance of that guy driving the coach, you know, I would have said to him, look, you don't know how to do that. You're just going to be flapping around the reins and hoping something happens. But, you know, if there is a chance that it can happen, then yeah, by all means, roll. And again, some people like rolling dice. Um, that That's a big part as well. Some people just want to make skill checks all the time. And um, to go back to what you were saying before about the narrative part of D&D and the modifiers as well, which we were talking about from Pathfinder earlier, um, I, I really wish the proficiency linked to that knowledge that you were talking about with the claim or mine, where this proficiency has a, a narrative outcome more so than a modifier and is in some way integral to running the game. It seems like that would fit better with the structure of D&D 5e rather than just a flat out plus two, plus three, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think that, I mean, well, that's why the modifier increases as you go and level and there are things you are proficient in, things you aren't. But, but that's what I mean. Can, is that but you can it, still roll for it, right? And I think that's part of the problem is that uh, when you look at these scenarios is there's nothing that says, like, uh, I guess the example I would give is gnomes are, the rock gnomes are supposed to be very familiar with, like, magical devices and stuff and history of all these things. But it's just assumed that the entire race has a plus two or plus four modifier on, because like all of them are just inbuilt geniuses when it comes to magical history. <laughs> and I'm like, that's, that's not, I don't like that as like, as a player, like I understand mechanically uh, it, it's something I'll buy into as a player. Like there are some edges of the mechanics that you just have to accept, but it kind of, cheapens the other person who has to pay a skill slot for proficiency in arcana right the the thing is though as well that like i'm talking about the proficiency modifier not fully fitting with the idea of of dnd 5e the same as this whole um species or race modifier that thrown in of plus two plus one in the grand scheme of things a plus one means fuck all to your character i really yeah. don't see the point there i'd much rather have a, a lineage type thing but but more narrative input to your character as you say so you're not trying to necessarily min max numbers you're you're looking at the character itself yeah i think it's fair uh, i would i'd be interested i mean it's it's the i mean there are two there are two areas I found that like role playing games have uh, not live or die on, but they're the things that break break suspension of belief for me the fastest, and it's social mechanics and it's knowledge mechanics. Yeah, uh, and it's it's not because either of those are particularly unusual to gaming. It's because the social mechanics. Uh, if I get to the point where I can just throw dice at a problem and make someone do something. 
it feels a lot like psychic manipulation or just like, brain <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm not saying this as a person who's like, uh, who wants to do those things, but I'm saying as a GM, it's very difficult to feel like I have narrative control or, or whether my NPCs are going to act normally. If someone can just roll eight dice, get enough successes and say like, yeah, I will sell you my house for a penny. I'm like, I think you have there's to no separate reasonable what chance. they're saying though. Cause if you, if you just take what a player says, sometimes like, we had a bard in our our D and D campaign who, who Richard knows, and the worst. You know, he he would just say this ridiculous <laughs> shit, and then and then roll a persuasion check, and and in the end, I'd just say to him, "Hey man, look, what, what's your intention here? What are you trying to get out of this situation? Okay, right. let's roll for that, and then here's what happens, and then even if you say something ridiculous, we'll honor what you've you've achieved." Yeah, and I like I don't. Uh, it's it's up like and there's some games where that's totally appropriate where that's just a, that's part of the system and you you buy into it by virtue of playing the game in the first place. Mm. But I mean, and there are others where uh, the other one that like I said that that always blows me away is knowledge. I'm like, so I have a rank five knowledge skill. I'm gonna roll my dice, and it turns out that I don't know this. And there's the other guy who's like, well, I'm also gonna roll a die, and I just happen to roll the exceptional success. Like, but you're an idiot. I'm a professional and <laughs> chained in this. Or like every person who's ever lived has a chance of figuring out what this random mystery was that no one's found for thousands of years, and yeah. you just happen to identify it in this case. I'm like it's, uh, I, I think that's basically the 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 other side of the coin that you're talking about is why why are one why are we rolling dice in this case? Why does one person who has known and no experience in this, get a chance. And in a lot of cases, I'll just tell players, look, you can't roll for this. It's not really in your background. But yeah, in some systems, like anybody can roll for anything. Yeah, like D&D 5 is definitely that way. And I, I much prefer some kind of a tag system for knowledge where you sh- share tags or have them under your knowledge. And so therefore you have some innate knowledge and then you can roll on top of that as, as you're saying but yeah it's kind of silly in D D 5e as well feeling unique the skills do nothing for that at this point unless you're very proficient in it um it really is just a case of everyone can do everything to a certain extent yeah i mean it's the balance between like what's the difference between arcana and history at some point like no, they are pres- such a fucking. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but you know what I mean. That, that's that's my point is that history, religion, and arcana are just subdivid. So in practice, they are very different, or in principle, they're very different skills. But in practice, I can, as a as a player, I can make a very strong argument, Your Honor, in in favor of me using any of these. <laughs> Like that, that that piece of magic was actually part of my my religion's backstory. It's part of my entire faith space system. You know, it's happened in this God story before. (laughs) And there goes the neighborhood. Yep, (laughs) that's why my characters die all the time. (laughs) I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me. You know. yeah, D and D five is at a turning point where that it's trying to embrace the narrative aspect of the the modern approach that they've sort of tailored, but it it can't really leave behind the the modifiers. But 
uh, at a certain point, it, you know, which one is it going to embrace further? You know, it's just kind of difficult to determine what's going to happen next. Yeah, I, I do like how they've the, what they've done in terms of scaling combat into a set of modifiers that makes sense is as a person who's watched like mages forever not having a modifier on their like either their spells are automatically effective or they have to roll a touch attack with their like pitiful non-combat modified bodies uh it is nice to see that the proficiency system neatly they've really elegantly addressed a lot of the what i'd call like the failings of your system of prior systems where either it was either complete success or certain classes could just succeed at anything as provided they had the right spell or there was no no chance that they could do anything in certain arenas but magic i just do what you're saying always <laughs> yeah. i always hit i always hit with magic missile i'm like oh that's a good reason to take magic missile isn't it that's why i keep <laughs> magic missile <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, man. I'm surprised well, it's not a cantrip. I think yeah, it well, hmm. but then you could use it as many times as you want, and you can. Yeah, I guess technically you could buff it up. Yeah, that's a good that point. Scalable, but I mean, uh, you can let it be like maybe one d four plus one damage every time. You know, just one missile. But yeah, well, I'd, I'd take it. Cast at third level, like whatever. I, I don't know. I. I I like I like what they've done in that regard, but I, I see your point too in terms of where it it's trying to like. There's never going to be that perfect system, but nah. I, it, I think it's done a great job of um, of trying to become a nuanced version of its older older iterations. I mean, for me, fourth edition when I looked at the base rule set and talked to friends who'd played it, I'm like, I that sounds like a great game. I don't know if I want to pretend to be playing a role playing game while I'm doing it. And it sounds like more battle map work, which is the opposite of what I wanted as a player and a GM. It sounds like they balanced it out to where they found a mid, uh, you know, a midpoint that works for a lot of people. But there is going to be, I guess, that like pain point where how 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 complicated or how difficult do you want to make this, or how many rules do you want to simplify down to make this work? Yeah, D and D five is definitely like the best current system for epic fantasy but at the same time it, it we've discussed before like richard and i said it feels like it's being pulled in so many directions at the moment and it just yeah i, I really don't know what's going to happen to it now where it's i don't think it'll be the same game in any year's time i think it'll be quite different i i think they're going to move to 5.5 or, or 6 edition sooner rather than later what the way things are going what do you, what kind of things are you talking about in terms of changing it? I mean, I've I've just walked into it basically over this past couple of days. Like, is it significantly different than it used to be, or what kind of forces are pushing on it? Um, I just feel that it's changed drastically in terms of taking out a lot of the modifiers and stuff, which I like, and I really like the advantage system. But in terms of changing it, they seem like they're going to more of a lineage type approach, um, like Pathfinder. But at the same time, they're leaving behind the traditional thing of ability score modifiers, which were kind of, you know, the the base of what you know of D&D. And at that point, if you go in towards that lineage idea, and what they're saying is you only inherit, for example, um, dark vision for a, a drow, 
something like that. You get stuff that's innate to their genetics, but anything else culturally, like languages, is something you get from their, say, background, which makes a lot of sense. But then by doing away with those modifiers, that sort of takes away a, a base system of D&D. And I feel like they're trying to push towards that narrative way, but then they're still, at the same time, they're handing us these lineages with, with modifiers. And it's like, well, which which do you want <laughs> That's not in the um, that's not in the current play on D and D Beyond at least it's not in the player's handbook. Is this something like a a a revised version they're publishing? I believe it's in an Arcana or Arcana. Yeah, so they said that going forward they're going to do away with modifiers. Um, It's just going to be something you pick. So you pick a plus two and a plus one in something, and then uh, yeah, you're going to now do it this way in the future so unearth arcana is basically content they push out to play test and then later they bring it into the game interesting that's um that's very very like what i've seen in uh what people have done with dungeon world where um you know you in the in the version the, the base version which is what all these things are derived from a lot of the sub games um you're you can get up to like a plus three i think it is with an 18 and then like the 16 and 17 is plus two etc and a lot of games have said we don't want to do one to 18 based attributes anymore we're just going to say you have a plus two and one like distribute the modifiers don't worry about the at the attribute number itself and it does simplify it down but i agree it does take it takes a certain like nostalgic feel away from uh players like me who grew up with world 3d6 and hope you get more than one that's three sixes and hopefully none of them are three ones well yeah as as we say like some people just love rolling dice and don't get me wrong like it, it makes sense to me this this change in the character uh, attribute modifiers because for example people are making the argument well Technically, something like a, an ogre is going to have a higher strength value than a halfling, which uh, of course they would. But I mean, a plus two, how does an ogre only have two more strength than a halfling? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I'd like it if they had something in there that was specific to their size. Uh, narratively, he's small and he's large. So here's the, the difference in how stuff's going to play out between them rather than here's a a number that that makes perfect sense to me but again some people just love rolling dice yeah i mean they have that now in the rules at least from the ones i've saw one of the elements is if like if someone is two sizes bigger than you you can move through their square as a hostile square i think you still probably provoke a potential attack on you but you can actually move through their square as opposed to around it yeah Uh, but what i i'd like to see is like if you're a size larger you automatically get advantage or some kind of other a benefit as well as others and then here's the negatives to being larger you can't use this you can't do that or you can do this and you can do that i'd like it to be you know fleshed out more and then it feels like i'm really this character they're, they're pushing this narrative but i don't feel like they're very different the species that makes sense i mean that that also makes you question like what's the difference between a a 20 foot tall humanoid and a two foot tall humanoid like what's the What's the mechanical difference? Like, obviously, physically interacting with the world is going to be different, but 
And that's the whole point of putting numbers on things is you're quantifying it. If you're not going to con- quantify it, then what's the point? Uh, yeah, well, that's from the dice rolling perspective. But then from this uh, narrative approach that they, they've given you, you can just put that thing of the tags rather than modifiers, which seems to be what they're doing where, um, you know, you're large, so therefore you can't use light armor or, or something like that, you know, rather than um, just adding numbers to it. Yeah, that's um, I don't know. I I, as you probably already gleaned, like I'm I'm all for simplifying systems down to a point, but you can bring it down to the point where you're actually detracting from the uh, core brand that you're selling with your your product. Uh, yeah, they should have a D and D classic where it does keep those attributes. I'd really like to see, um different versions i was saying to richard you could have technically have a cool rule book and then a supplement for the way in which people want to play it seems like some people want that you know uh, but again it's easier to have a rounded thing so then any adventure supplements aren't all fucked up from different rule systems and and so on and so forth but again if dnd are doing away with character attributes then what's to stop them from pulling away in other ways because i mean at, the, at some point the modifiers won't mean anything if you keep pulling them out of everything yeah i know i i know that like what how dungeon world deals with that is uh you don't actually have random damage per weapon uh each class has a damage die and for example like a, a paladin or a fighter it's like usually a d10 uh for a rogue it's like a d8 I, I'm, I'm i'm oversimplifying to some degree but like the weapon you pick determines like whether it's reach or not, whether the range it can do. Some are forceful, where if you hit with it, it knocks people over or sends them flying. Some of them are messy because they make a mess when they hit something, like that kind of thing. Um, hmm. I, I, I can't think, but like maybe you could do that with a race too, like big or messy or you know has certain characteristics associated with it. But I mean, it does. I've got Dungeon World for that. Like I don't need the the whole point of Dungeon World is that it's it's slimmed down. You drive like an arrow right at the story, and you don't you don't sweat the small things. Um, I don't know if D and D would benefit from that from my perspective. Like one of the reasons I like it is because you have to worry about numbers to some degree. Yeah, it's like a simplified version of a number heavy game, but it seems like they're they're pulling out. It, it, it's quite confusing there. They're saying one thing on one hand with this these narrative decisions, and on the other, they're trying to implement lineages which will, which will create other modifiers. I, I I don't think anyone knows what they're doing. I think they made a a rash decision to say moving forward, this is what we're going to do, and everyone was like, okay, that's fine if you want to do away with those character attributes, but you have to have something just as impactful. Um, for my character creation and you haven't provided an alternative yet. Yeah. I'm, I'm certainly open to the argument that uh, numbers for races just causes people to arrange their preset attributes in areas that will let them maximize it. Yeah. Uh, and I, I mean, that's, that's fair. But I mean, then you can also make the argument that in doing so, I'm also determining the kind of orc or elf or gnome or human that I'm going to play. Like if I if I want those attributes, I'm playing I'm playing the best version of this particular race for this class 
based on my concept. Uh, I don't well, think it's technically it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. Well, you do that for the class anyway, right? Is yeah, to exactly pick the class, yeah, and then you're doing it with the race. But then the problem is with the race is that they're pigeonholing you into a trope. I get that, like you know, an orc is strong, so therefore he's a fighter, a barbarian, blah blah blah. I, I do understand that they want to say, well, why can't an orc be a, a good bard? That that makes sense to me. Uh, as I'm saying, like, I don't have an issue with that either, but you know. I think what you're saying is that you, your brand is to have those attributes. And then I, I agree with that. And my, my issue is that if they're going to take those away, they need a strong replacement and they haven't even hinted at what they're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can see that. And I, I think that's part of it is like part of what draws that that's been kind of D and D's hallmark is a little bit of the crunch, a little bit of the numbers. Yeah. Uh, it's it's where a lot of us learn to roleplay, uh, or not roleplay, but just build, I- interact with mechanical systems. Um, I mean, it's uh, I can still remember, like in college, a friend of mine uh, who had taken advanced statistics, and one guy was doing like calculus, and the three of us were sitting there, like, yeah, yeah, I'm sure, like, all right, so I rolled this, and you know, it's a three plus seven plus six is obviously twelve, and I'm like, hold on, go back. It's it's sixteen. They're like, really? They're like, yeah. And we're arguing about basic addition and subtraction and multiplication. Um, it's kind of part of the system. It's it's part of its its historical draw for me. I can't I don't know how you it's the choices. It's like all the small choices and numerical being able to play that off the math. Um, worrying about which spell I'm picking as a warlock and whether it scales up at higher levels, because all my spells are going to be cast at higher levels when as I level up. So picking yeah, a first I mean, level spell, you know, isn't that doesn't advance with me, isn't as useful to me as a warlock. It's like those small numerical quality of life choices, so that I can build the character that I want that make D anD D interesting to me and make it different than say Dungeon World or uh, Rifts or you know more complicated systems. Yeah, D anD D five E is definitely not balanced in terms of what you pick for your character. I mean, it's not broad enough that you can make a major mistake and and completely fuck up your character but also a lot of the spells are not balanced correctly um there's a lot of play test issues with D 5e but one of the things that i've encountered because i run a bunch of workshops for new players like probably around 20 at this point um for new players uh from different walks of life and i found that you know, I I don't want to be derogatory about the the television show. I don't think it's a television show. Critical Role. Um, I've listened to a few podcasts of it, and you know, they're if you're not familiar with it, they're voice actors that play yeah. Dungeons yeah. and Dragons. And I, you know, without being rude to anyone, I can tell the people that have watched that show and are coming into the game because they don't care about the crunch and they're they've into doing silly voices and the narrative part, which I love. But as soon as I start mentioning die rolls, they just switch off. And so I I think that's influencing the game as well, to an extent. I know a lot of people refer to it as the Mercer effect, the the dungeon master, Matt Mercer, which isn't really fair because he's not done it intentionally. But yeah, I, I feel that's to some extent impacting the game for sure. I guess part of it is so I've I've mentioned a whole slew of games during this 
recording. Like, yeah. there are lots of games out there. If you want to tell, I'm not saying that D and D shouldn't try to be able to tell better stories, but there are games that do the narrative style of play better than D and D. And if I, I I go back to what I said before. Like, I think it's very hard to find a game that'll do all things for all people. Mm. And uh, if you try and be that game, you're probably going to tear yourself apart because D and D at its baseline. Uh, I mean, I ran so another like um, another Gen Con story. Like when uh, a couple of years after like our first game, I went at uh, this thing called NASCRAG at uh, Gen Con. And you form a, you're competing against other groups. Everyone gets the same basic set of modules. And it's totally silly. It's things like, I think in one of ours, um, they, it, it's, it's totally satiring D&D. They have some basic D&D mechanics. So at the time, like 3 and 3.5, you had to, it helped to have some experience, but there wasn't a giant battle map. Like a lot of it was certain story results were going to happen. And you as a group had to get up and do a line dance. Or I think at one point we had to make a wedding dress out of several rolls of toilet paper and pack of paper plates. Like it was, <laughs> it was not a, I, I say this so that people understand that the point of it obviously was that the rules were only barely tangential to the experience the players were doing. And, you were rated as groups based on the amazing shit you did and how well, when you were given an archetype for a character, like how well you played that character. Um, the My wife's character was a, a goblin cleric and the big boss guy had been wounded a lot. And part of her backstory was that she never, she had to heal people. She couldn't see suffering essentially. And she healed him as soon as he landed in front of her and she got points for that and moved on. Um, but cool. it was also, you know, it was it was a narrative thing where you had to, like, at the end of the game, you had to write down what your wish was, and they ranked your characters based on how appropriate the wish was to, you know, the backstory and stuff. And if you want that kind of game, that's, that's fucking great. Um, I love working with those kinds of players who either want something silly or want a, a deep... I mean, I mentioned it when I was talking about Hellas, where... I want people who want to play serious games and I just don't like people say they want, want it. But like for me, for serious, it's you never break character. You're hundred yeah. percent into the love of the setting. You want to delve into the great darkness or the great light. Uh, you're willing to stand uh, at the gates of uh, Thermopylae and be part of that 300, knowing that it's better to die in the shade of the arrows falling down and bound you than it is to live uh, knowing you've betrayed your oath and your kinsmen are behind you. And whether the Athenians come now, um, that is a story for a later date. I will die a Spartan. Like, that's that's a great story. Um, mm-hmm. It's a good role play, but it's a different role play than Rick and Morty. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like there, there are different narrative experiences out there, and a different, and there are also different kinds of combat systems. If you just want to play miniatures and do it with a role play story behind it, there are games for that too. I just haven't found a system that does all of them well. I've just found the no. dungeon world lets me tell the stories that I want to tell, and lets all of us get together and play games, and we can do it seriously or not seriously, and everybody seems to enjoy it. Uh, and if D and D wants to do that with Fifth Edition. 
I think they've got a good product from what I've seen so far. Um, I'm not sure how what I'd feel if they took some of the numbers out. Yeah, I I think the problem Richard and I have discussed before is that a lot of people see D and D as the first and only role playing game available, and then. Uh. <laughs> because the community around it is is a community that they enjoy, they want to be a part of it, and so they'd rather change the game than change the community that they're within, and so therefore they're asking for these changes. And don't get me wrong, a big part of D and D Fine Brew, you can change everything to how you want to play it and around that. And from what you're saying and from what I've read of Dungeon World, it seems like that would actually fit what they want to do for the game. It's it's about everything around it, the critical role, the community and, and everything it represents to them rather than having fun. It, you, you yeah, know there's I mean. external pressures on fun, people but. and they want to... They want to cater to the audience that they're certainly my answer is yeah sure yeah. why not you know and uh i guess i i, I um i've spent a lot of i think i said before like i've probably spent more time playing miniature ones game and like there's yeah. so many other games out there like i play historical games at 15 millimeters for world war ii that have zero familiarity to someone who's played 40k uh um there's inquisitor which i know is another games workshop product but like it's it's huge miniatures and like it's basically a role-playing game with tactical elements uh there's so much stuff you can do with three-dimensional play i play something now called uh or frost grave and rangers of shadow deep oh yeah i know Um, that one yeah and their rangers shadow deep in particular is like it's not you were not there is no game master you're not you and your other player, you're involved in a narrative story that you're playing as, mini- you know, as miniatures, but also as characters and with warbands, and you're working together to solve problems. And the AI yeah. basically runs it for you. So it's not saying that 40k isn't a miniature game. It obviously is, and it sells a lot of models, and it's a big part of the industry. But it's not the only place you have to, you can enter the enter the environment. 40k is is D 5e for miniatures in the sense yeah, that it's extremely 100%. broad but it's not very deep yes well and it's it's changing like even 40k of now is different than when i joined back in like back in my day that's right we used and we used the hover tank deodorant set. You know, we put the put the deodorant at the skin. You guys and your sprays. We only had sticks, and we've turned the door and the little twist at the bottom was the jet engine. And that was how we made our hover tank. So we liked it. God damn it! And the emperor works, <laughs> and that was good enough for us. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, Richard's just texted me saying he's got to go soon. Um, okay. Would you come back on the podcast sometime, Matthew? Love to. That was awesome, no. man. I feel like no, we could no, talk no. for hours. Shut up, no. no. <laughs> oh, no. It's, it's, been, it's been a lot of fun. I just had something I got to do at like 12.30, so I got to get out of here. But y'all are welcome to stay and talk. We, we'll wrap up there, man. And, uh, yeah, we'll have Matthew back on whenever he has time. Thanks for joining us, Matthew. Thanks for having me. Anytime you guys want me, let me know. That was awesome, man. 
want to learn about more RPGs. Oh, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> Me too. Definitely want to look up some of those. And I actually, yeah, I've, campaign I've downloaded two of them. <laughs> You're such a nerd. I know. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, hey. But I do appreciate, it, and I hate to cut it short, but uh, I have to talk with y'all later. And for everybody else, uh, we'll hear you next week. Then, Richard, Jim, thanks for having me.